Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of M365 Voice. Uh, my name is Antonio Mayo. I'm Sarah Halsey. And I am Mike Monerani. And today we've got another special guest with us, uh, Chris McNulty from Microsoft. Uh, Chris, uh, I think a lot of us know you, uh, but why don't you tell us what you do at Microsoft? We're very pleased to have you here to talk to us about Project Cortex and SharePoint Syntax today. Uh, well, thanks. And it's uh, it's really great to be here on your podcast. What do I do at Microsoft? It's something you know I'm still discovering, I think, week by week. Um, so I joined Microsoft about six years ago. Um, I am director of product marketing for Microsoft 365. So within that um, area, and that's a fairly large area, my principal responsibilities relate to content services. And so that is the range of capabilities that we have um, from SharePoint document management through E5 compliance, through our investments in some next generation technologies such as Syntex and the upcoming release of Cortex topics. That's great. Uh, so you've got a wide breadth of, of technology that you work on at Microsoft. Um, you know, we want to talk to you about Project Cortex and Syntex specifically because that's an area a lot of us are getting into. But I think we might touch on some of those other things as well. So we're going to go round robin like we often do and ask questions. Um, which of us here wants to start? Sarah, you're smiling. Do you want to start? I have I, I have 72 questions to get us started. So in no particular order, um, but one of the key things that I know that I often get asked is SharePoint Syntax is an, an add-on license per user per month in addition to E3 and E5. Are there any advantages to being on E5 and using Syntax as opposed to being on E3 and using Syntax? Um, it's a great question, and absolutely. The, one of the biggest advantages is that Syntax has the ability to, as it recognizes content, to be able to automatically attach um, MIP or retention labels, the security and compliance policies that have these magic metadata tags that we use to um, enforce them by attaching them to, to content. So when Syntax recognizes that something looks like a high dollar value contract where you might have different governance rules around it. It can automatically attach the appropriate label, but it needs that automatic label engine to be present. And that's one of the things that E5 provides. So whether it's being, you have it through E5 all up or through the E5 compliance engine, um, that's some value that you get for syntax over and above what you would get with just E5 natively. Okay, because um, Syntax can um, apply a retention label based on a content type that is automatically classified or tagged with the document for a document understanding model. But in this case, you're actually saying the auto classification that you get with E5 can further automate that and make it more proactive. Correct, and we do have it on the roadmap. Um, that document understanding engine inside Syntax, that auto labeling capability is coming to the form processing engine here in, um, just a few weeks. Um, we have a open roadmap item on it right now, and you can expect to see that start to starting to roll before the end of March. Fantastic. Cool. So talking about that subject, um, so is there any recommendation that you would give to users? So naturally, when when we're writing documents, um, is there any specific way that users should write a document that will help the metadata extraction? Or we could tell the end users, keep doing whatever you're doing when you write documents, upload documents to um, to SharePoint, 
and syntax is going to understand it when we train it? Um, that's a, a great question. And, you know, there are ways that you can use um, kind of heritage SharePoint to enforce things with document templates and certain standards for how things are created. Um, syntax is a powerful engine. And in particular, on the document understanding side, you're not necessarily tied to having um, numbers and dates show up in certain areas of the document, but um, it does help for there to be some level of predictability. The rules engines that we have inside document understanding can look for what's happening adjacent. There's a lot of text analytics to be intelligent, um, but like if you decide to put a date in the beginning of a contract in one document and below the signature line the second time and bury it in the text the third time, you can build rules to accommodate all of that, but you have to remember to accomplish that variation. So the more that um, there's some uh, predictable patterns that you can see out there, uh, the more accurate the classifications and extracts are that syntax makes. So I have a follow-up question, sorry. Um, so you when do. you're thinking about things, of course I do, because when you're thinking about things like statements of work, for example, right, you might get a statement of work from a variety of um, companies that you're doing business with, right? And their statements of work are gonna follow their standardized template. Could you actually envision a scenario where in order for Syntex to be able to optimally retrieve and tag things and extract data from those files to populate some of our columns, where you might have a, a a human so, such as myself going through, pulling out key details, adding them into a standard area almost at the top of the document just to get a higher uh, accuracy rating as that document or that content is being ex extracted? Or are we expecting more that the AI and the machine learning is gonna get so good that it'll be able to account for those types of differentials? Um, the recommendations sort of in between the two of those um, ideas, Sarah. Uh, it's um, the form processing model now has the ability to allow you to to couple multiple layouts within the same um, within the same model. So that if you think about that content type, if you do have one where um, you know the signature block is on the lower left in one example and the lower right in another one, and you know are, do we have you know what's the sequence of like invoice number, date, name, all of those variations that you may see over time, you can integrate all of those and say, if you see anything that matches these fingerprints, here's how to pull that information out and then coherently have a common set of metadata and recognitions that you're applying to similar documents without their being identical. That's so a good Chris, answer. Chris, I wanted to, to, I've got a couple of technical questions for you, but I wanted to back up a little bit first. Like, I often, when I talk about SharePoint syntax to some of our customers, I need to back up and explain to them what Project Cortex is. And often the way that I discuss that is Project Cortex is an initiative at Microsoft. It's not a product. And out of that initiative, you're going to have multiple products. The first one being SharePoint syntax. The next one that's coming out is topics and topic cards. And I wanted to get your your take on that. Is that how you think of it or you would describe it? Or is there anything else you would kind of add on top of that in terms of the direction of Project Cortex versus these products that are coming out of it? Uh, yeah, I think that's really a great way 
to describe it. Um, we have spent an extraordinary amount of time looking at the naming in and around this whole project. Um, and when we chose the name Project Cortex, it was with a clear understanding that by calling it a project, we we're making, hoping to make it clear that that wasn't necessarily the product name. Um, as it stands today, um, that initiative, um, which is from an engineering area headed up by yet another former MVP, Naomi Moneypay, yeah. um, um, her team has been um, working and innovating at this point for you know a year and a half of heads down coding at this point. Syntax came out um, as we announced on the 4th, um, topics reach general availability, and that team is continuing to work both on those experiences and then as they innovate, it is an open question. Um, what's going to be the best way to introduce those to people? Right now, our thinking is very much that those are the two product channels where her team's work you can expect to see show up over time. Great. Great. So, so before and, the and, and just in that, um, one of the things that if you look closely, we are kind of slowly retiring the Project Cortex name. Um, so you'll see that less and less. It's there as a point of historical reference. You know, someday I'm sure it'll be a giveaway at a future SharePoint Saturday is what was the original name of, you know, Syntex. You know, it's not Tahoe, but, uh, um, but we've, been fairly out there. Yeah, we, we've been out there. I mean, this is one that the press has picked up on and uh, we know that there is a lot of value and love in Cortex. And I, you know, personally, um, when we had looked at that, I, I love that name, but we really um, um, have gone through a lot of permutations, most of which I can't disclose, um, with names we loved even more and couldn't necessarily clear legally. Um, but um, we really think that the brands that we have now reflect the value that's out there. I, I will just acknowledge that one of our lead executives in speaking to legal just observed that it seems that every single word in the English language has already been spoken for. Somewhere there's a trademark on something, you know, you know, unless we're going to start creating new words and misspelling them, you know, you know, <laughs> taking out all the vowels, like it's not going to be called vowel, it's going to be called VWL, for the silent Q at the end, you know. Um, so, so, um, so topics and syntax are the principal places to look for that information moving forward. Great, great. So, so before my my colleagues here jump in with more questions, I'm going to get technical for a second. You, you only yeah. get one, Antonio. Yes, yeah, no, that's not true. Um, <laughs> um, so, I do want to get technical for a second and ask if you can talk a little bit about um, explanations in syntax because we find in multiple places when you start using syntax and develop a classifier you have this notion of explanations and can you talk a little bit about the purpose of those and what they do because I've, I've tried to explain that to people and some people get it and other people don't so wondering your take on it on that yeah so um fantastic question explanations is one of those things that um we have a team of folks who really look at the best way to name things and one of the things that we had considered naming them, which felt a little too um, casual, was his, was hints. Because if you think about how syntax analyzes a document, you go through it and you, you mark the sections where there's metadata. 
And the AI is usually pretty good about being able to figure out contextually what what patterns should be used to generate the AI um, around that. Um, um, what an explanation is, is it's really a hint to provide even more guidance. You know, syntax, if you think about an analogy of uh, driving a, a car um, down a road, um, syntax would be pretty good at figuring out that like, well, you usually need to turn right after 500 yards or for those of you in the Great White North, 500 meters. Um, so it can figure that out. But if you have a signpost that's out there that says turn right here, that's a much uh, clearer indication. And so those explanations provide a set of patterns to look for, things that are adjacent, areas of the document where those are going to be more or less relevant. Um, we've been supplementing the explanations that you can write with some commonly used patterns for things like phone numbers or credit card numbers. Um, to make it even easier for the AI to pick up on those hints or explanations. That's really the best way to think of them. Great. I That's love the word hints. That's a great way to be able to explain it to people as well. Yes. Um, so a question before my question, because um, Antonio did it, so I'm doing it. Um, for the patterns that you can add to those explanations or hints, are you going to be adding more to them? Because I know that it's very helpful. For example, I was just using like the zip code um, explanate or the pattern um, this week, but I was looking for, ooh, I'd love an email pattern. Do you have more of them that are going to be coming on the roadmap? Uh, definitely. I don't want to mislead the audience by um, predicting which ones are coming when, but that is one of our um, ongoing roadmap items to make sure that there's more and more things that are done there. Remember, the idea of syntax is to really take the AI power and make it available to as many people as possible, especially people who don't write code. And you can have a good academic debate about is a regular expression code, but it's really daunting for most people to develop their own. And so yeah. we know that the more of those that we put in, and also as we you know, think internationally, those US patterns are not the only ones that um, are going to make the most sense. Um, so there's definitely going to be more and more of those coming. And you're starting to see us do that. There's an open roadmap item now about um, um, being to um, inject, you know, things like dynamic phrase lists, look at how closely two patterns happen near each other as a signal. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, something that it looks like it might be a postal code. Um, definitely is even more likely to be a postal code if it's occurring adjacent to someone's phone number or email. And so mm -hmm. those are some of the examples of the um, being able to provide even more guidance to let people stitch those explanations or hints up. Okay. All right. So now my real question. I've heard that Syntax has um, OCR or optical character recognition capabilities. Can you explain how that would work? So how you could use OCR to let's say scan something? OCR is a general set of technologies that's deployed in a couple of places inside Syntax. Um, one place where it is running right now is inside of form processing. If you think about, um, there are some forms that are purely electronic. And there are some forms which start out electronic and then transit to the paper world. And someone may 
put a live signature on it or an annotation, and then somehow bring it back into digital format. So Syntax is able to apply OCR to that character recognition. Um, and when we are pulling metadata out of a given form, um, it can apply it to that. Um, in my own experience, like signatures are actually fairly good unless you're doing what I call the Starbucks signature. You know, when they ask you to sign something with your finger and you just draw a line through it, obviously we're not going to um, be able to do that. Um, the OCR is also extended to digital assets like images. And this is a set of technologies um, that um, are slated for rollout, I'd say about a third of the way through the year, Look, looking for them sometime around April. But being able to have a really um, fine-grained, high-quality set of automatic tagging that's applied to images, being able to look at handwriting or look at optical renditions of, of words, turn those into text um, so that you can operate and extract that text, as well as an enhanced object recognition engine that can recognize thousands of common objects and be able to pull those out at the same time. So that's the timeline for looking at those things. Okay. So tagging to that topic, is there any limitations? I've been doing some couple of POCs and Clients have asked me if there are any limitations to older type of documents when it comes to content extracting, uh, like all older Office documents. Is, is there anything that any type of documents, whether it's a Microsoft Office or others, that we should be aware of? Um, the strongest place to pull information out of are going to be Office Docs, PDFs, and image files through all of their forms. Uh, we're continuing to crack into additional file formats, but um, that's a place where we would love to get feedback on that, whether it's through user voice or reaching out to your friendly neighborhood podcast MVP about what some of your, where you think we should tackle additional file formats to bring them in line. Okay. That was so now, a really good question. My question is, that's my real question. Um, so we've heard that that's that's a question from our our audience actually. What we've heard that Microsoft Search Connectors are part of the Project Cortex story. Uh, can you talk about how Microsoft Search Connectors will be used with or enhance Project Cortex or SharePoint syntax? Um, absolutely. So the content connectors that are available today, and there are about 130 of them, um, they bring information from outside of our cloud into the graph, and the graph is a whole bunch of things at Microsoft. It is um, a set of APIs that our apps and developers use to access information that lives in our cloud. Um, and it is also an AI predictive layer that is intelligently looking at and making suggestions um, about relevant content based on the interaction model you have with content and communications and other people. Um, so getting information the graph is already getting information about what lives in the cloud. And those content connectors um, can reach out to dozens of external sources, whether they're in places like ServiceNow or Salesforce or FileShares or SQL Server. Um, there's about a dozen that are built from Microsoft and dozens more that are built by partners of ours, like BA Insight, Integration, Accenture, and others. So, the connectors bring information into the graph, and that makes it searchable. So you can start to put information into query 
and it'll pull, show you information that may be coming from, say, ServiceNow knowledge base articles. Uh, the next step in that journey um, for topics specifically is to include um, the topic, what we call the mining engine. It will look at the external content as well as internal content. So that information that lives in those outside sources, when it's connected by the content connectors, it's fair game for us to generate topics against those or to pull those as references into topic cards and topic pages for you automatically. Um, there'll be even more to come with connectors you know, in, in the future, but that's really our mission over the next six months is to kind of broaden the scope of content that can flow into knowledge. That's great. So it's it's primarily impacting topics and topic cards, the graph connectors. Is that fair to say? Um, As opposed to syntax. Um, that's all we're ready to talk about today. I will say, okay. say that and no more. Okay. I thought you were going to say it depends. <laughs> um, so, so Chris, also just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yammer, what are some of the other punchlines we should toss out that get over you? <laughs> that's, uh, that's great feedback. <laughs> Need a beer for that. Um, so, so Chris, we, we heard Satya and Jared's announcements on February 4th. Um, really exciting. Wanted to give you a chance to comment on it and perhaps share a little bit more insight on the impacts of those announcements. Is there anything you can talk about there or share more with us? Well, gosh, I mean, we I think we finally put it all out there. Um, so we are thrilled at being able to take the wraps um, off of everything that we've been doing with topics and with the rest of the modules, um, which comprise Microsoft Viva. Um, so topics is available now. It reached general availability. Um, it's something that's been a long time in coming. Um, and we really wanted to make sure that we had that great value um, surrounding the innovation that we've brought forward with topics, really taking a look at where we've come in the past year and knowing that um, the pandemic that we've been moving through has really accelerated the rate of change of so many factors that change our digital workplaces. And so the drive to ever more remote work, um, we know has a real impact on employee well-being. And I think from Microsoft's perspective, um, I, I know Satya said this more eloquently than I can, but um, we have both a, um, uh, an opportunity as well as a responsibility to look at our position um, and how much engagement we as Microsoft have with our applications, with the content people create with our applications to be able to help organizations shape that employee experience in a way that you know maximizes um, everyone's well-being and helps people and teams be at their best. And parts of that include work-life balance, making sure people are connected and communicating. And we know that um, looking at the space of knowledge, that there's just an extraordinary amount of wasted, frustrating time that people spend looking for knowledge that already exists. And as those work patterns change, it is far less likely that you're going to stick your head up over a cubicle wall or wander down a hall and just ask someone a question. 
And so we really think about what are the best ways for knowledge to be able to find you? And that's why we see knowledge as being one of the instrumental measures of being able to improve the quality of people's um, everyday work experience by, by using the AI that we've done as part of topics to be able to automatically recognize and organize content into topics which we deliver through Microsoft 365, through Teams, through SharePoint, through Outlook, through Search, and the rest of the apps. And that's, from my perspective, um, the biggest announcement yesterday that, that it's there, it's out, it's available now, and we really are excited to move from the preview program where we've been in for many months into opening this up for the world. I, I love how uh, Microsoft has tied these these various initiatives, right? Topics being one of the key ones to the notion of well-being. Like uh, uh, all of us are on Twitter, right? We're on Twitter all the time, every single day. And I'm always impressed by how much Microsoft people promote the idea of well-being. Like it reminds me on a daily basis often that I don't have to be working all the time, despite the fact that I'm at home all the time and we're in this pandemic and lockdowns all the time. So the notion of reminding people about well-being all the time, it's very clear Microsoft takes it very seriously, the idea of everyone's well-being at Microsoft. And it does feel like this announcement kind of reinforces that. So I do love how you've tied this notion of topics and knowledge and finding knowledge more easily to people's well-being, because I do think it has a real a real valid impact. Like, I'm really excited to see topics come out and to use it for surfacing things like tacit knowledge. Like we've talked about that a little bit. Um, so yeah. Um, and, and Antonio, it really goes beyond all of that. I mean, if you if you know the measures that you know we've gotten from our research and talking to customers, just looking at how our services are consumed, um, um, people's work days have extended. Um, people have less interaction than they have before. Um, yeah. Burnout is at like a, a higher level, both for individuals as well as for managers. And we know that um, people, organizations need to be resilient. Those changes need to be done in a way that are sustainable, that kind of balance, just helping people work decently, helping people be decent towards each other. Things in like virtual commute being able to um, create that space between your work productivity and your quote unquote real life um, is super important for how we, the cognitive processing we need to do about how information gets filed. Um, there's a study that showed, um, and I'm not, uh, I don't want to single out people in Southern California, but that um, in certain areas of the United States, people have um, a harder time recalling dates of personal events in their lives. And part of the reason for that is um, because of the lack of, of um, climate change in many of these areas. In San Diego, did something happen in in March or did it happen in July or did it happen in November? Well, it's really hard to, in your memory, distinguish those times because they, the environment seems so similar. And when every workday is being done in the same room off the living room or in someone's front hallway and it's the same place where you're doing your life, it's just harder for people to process that. And 
you know, I think that employee well-being, you know, re- extends to so many attributes of how people collaborate. And we're really excited to take this next step in our journey. You're muted, Sarah. You're muted, Sarah. Oh, it's so much less interesting the second time around. But that's so exciting. And it's really interesting when you say that, because living in the northern half of the country, where we experience four seasons, um, you know, it's very interesting to think about, because you do immediately think about what kind of season it was in. And if you live in a climate where you don't really have those difference in seasons, that it might uh, really impact where uh where you're going. So topics fit within this broader scheme of what you're really talking about, about well-being um, and productivity and having, not that you use these words, but having a balance to things, work mm-hmm. life, home life. You know, engagement, like people have the tools they need to be successful. And, you know, the other thing I really think it's important to pay attention to in those announcements is the idea of platform that um, you know, as much as people you know are going to work from where they are, we want organizations to be able to consume um, information through this platform, um, regardless of where it is. And it's very much an open approach. So if we need to be able to bring uh, knowledge-based data in from ServiceNow, um, or look at patterns of communication that people have inside of Zoom and Slack, or integrating information beyond LinkedIn learning from places like um, um, Pluralsight, or thinking about the connections module and being able to integrate task management systems that live outside Microsoft 365, really be creating uh, an open platform with a set of APIs to let organizations, you know, adapt and adopt their work practices um, with minimal change to the investments they've already made, we hope. That's fantastic. Um, so lots of exciting stuff to dig into with the this announcement of Viva. Um, but before we, we close off, I'll ask Mike or Sarah if they've got any other questions for you. Um. No, it's been really exciting, very, very excited about um, what we have used so far, the announcements, and uh, to augment the Project Cortex uh, family. So it's been, it's been really, really awesome to hear about all of this. So, yeah. so, so I have a question for each of you, and I'll sure. you can turn it back on me at the end. Um, so we turned the calendar page, virtually or physically, it's 2021, and you know, the good Lord willing, we're going to get through this pandemic and things are going to go to the new new normal where we get to mm-hmm. I don't know go on planes and go to events and conferences and as you think forward for through the year I'm just kind of curious to get uh, each of your sense of what's um, one event that you're really hoping to be able to um, rejoin in the hopefully not too distant future across this community. Um, I've always looked forward for the MVP conference and MVP summit, uh, something that uh, we missed it last year. We're going to miss it this year in person. Um, so hopefully 2022, it will be in, in, in person for sure. That is one thing I've always looked forward 
to connect with everyone across the globe and with the engineering team. I was going to say the first one that's coming up in whatever month that we can resume um, a brand new version of normal. Um, I think it's hard. One of the things that you said, Chris, that really struck me was this whole idea of a uh, a virtual commute, because mm -hmm. it, it does get really hard for those of us who have spent, you know, close to a year at this point, mostly at home, right? And oh. how do we put how do we bring an element of transition or change or time in it to be able to free ourselves from one thought context to another? And so when we talk about being able to travel and, and see people, and I've oftentimes heard people say, with all the virtual conferences, would you go to an in-person conference? And the answer is yes, I cannot wait, right? Absolutely. Um, because there is something about being able to be together, to be able to have those conversations uh, and both uh, when we're talking about things like the opportunity to connect with Microsoft people such as yourself and have those conversations in smaller groups or being able to go to a large conference and being able to sit in a keynote event. I think both are so dramatically different. That's so important. For me, we had a we we last uh, podcast we recorded was kind of a get to know your podcast. We had a really similar question, so I'll kind of repeat the answer I said there. I've actually always really enjoyed visiting the Seattle Redmond Bellevue area. Um, I've gotten to get there a couple times a year for the last umpteen years. So MVP summit or some other summit there, you know, that we've been to the content services summit a couple times. Um, just getting to that area, I'd really like to uh, revisit there again as one of the first events. Yeah, you know, I think that's, you know, th that's great. And Sarah, I was really struck by what you were saying, um, uh, you know, that it's there being at home. There are some things I think that we've learned work almost equally well, right? R having a team meeting, well, whether you're doing it on Teams or you're in a conference room, that seems to work okay. Yeah. Um, uh, primary education, maybe it doesn't work remote nearly as well as we would hope. And for things like conferences, and we know that we've been running these events, um, they, they're good sources of information and of communication. Um, there's, you know, think about work-life balance. They're not as fun and there's less serendipity and the chance to make surprise connections or um, you've got, 30 minutes free and you go into a breakout session you weren't planning on and you discover something that you didn't know before. Um, those opportunities, I think, are ones that I'm really looking forward to rejoining. And I love, you know, when I was an MVP, I loved coming to the Bellevue area. Now that I live 10 minutes away from it, I still love going there and look forward to having the MVP summit back. But um, I'm not going to pick a Microsoft event because they're, once you're in Microsoft, there are also these huge rushes to get ready and they're, um, they're exhilarating and exhausting. Um, last year, I was lucky enough to be able to um, drive across the country four times for family reasons. And it was a um, exhausting and exhilarating experience to just um, be able to do that. Um, and, you know, look at, you know, it, it's fascinating to me to think that like I, um, I have now gone to the East Coast twice without ever stepping on an airplane. The the road that my street go, you know, actually connects through um, to 
Spokane and Minneapolis and Chicago and took different routes on each route and I got to see a lot of the country, um, which is a long roundabout way of leading up to um, all roads seem to lead through Chicago. So I am going to um, one of my personal favorites has always been the SharePoint Fest events that are run in Chicago. And so I'm looking forward to that one. It's a good size. It's great to be able to get engagement with the community and with customers. It's not overwhelming, but that's the one I'm really looking forward to getting back to hopefully later this year. Yeah, and I think it's in July. And uh, yes, I am looking to be there for sure. So. Yes, yeah. Can't wait. That, that was, I say, I say for sure because in COVID times we always say, oh yes, we'll be there for sure. And we hope that this is really going to happen this time, that it's for sure. <laughs> and, I, and I'll be, um, Sarah, I know this is, that's um, now from my perspective, you know, that's, you know, Chicago is practically next door to Minneapolis because I look back at some of my driving days and went like, hey, I did Poughkeepsie, New York to Marysville, Wisconsin in one day. That was a big day. Or, um, <laughs> Topeka, Kansas through St. Louis, all the way to Columbus, Ohio in one day. You know, these are oh. um, by way of Illinois, Indiana, and Kentucky. Like, that's, that's um, a long drive. That's a lot of driving. Yeah, but we, we talk about on this podcast all the time that I'm just going to swim up to Ottawa. It'll be fine from Minnesota. <laughs> and it's it's nothing. A little drive, a little swim, and I'll be there. And then I can see friends, right? It'll be great. Yeah, it was great. You know, when when you fly into these cities, sometimes, you, you know, you, you get this sketchy view. Oh, this highway goes there. And I finally got to connect all those highways in my mental map of the country. Yeah. There's so many of these cities. So um, it, I'm looking forward to those events. And of course, I'm looking forward to seeing um, each of you um, in the lives in a live space um, in the not too distant future, as well as to the audience. So don't be strangers, um, please, you know, we, we love these podcasts. We love getting um, questions. We love learning from our customers. And you know, thank you for all that you do to help support uh, Microsoft's mission here with our customers. Well, this is great, Chris. It's great having you on our podcast. Uh, appreciate you sharing your insights on Project Cortex, SharePoint Syntax topics. We're really excited to have that out. Um, Viva and Satya and Jared's announcements from February 4th. Um, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, look forward to seeing you at an event in person sometime soon. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.